listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. Good morning, everybody. After that overture, I think I ought to really shout loud here for you. <laughs> My name is Greg Fondell, and I'm a, a covenant pastor and, and also a corporate chaplain for a company in Alexandria, Minnesota. Uh, it's a real privilege to be with you again this Sunday. Uh, I usually get to sit on that side uh, and, uh, and benefit from, from all the good teaching up here, and I, I hope that... Uh, I won't disappoint you too much this morning, so uh, would you join me in prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In the Old Testament, we get a window into the hearts of the prophets. From some of their words, it would be pretty easy for us to assume that most of them got up on the wrong side of the bed most mornings. Don't the prophets in the Old Testament seem like kind of cranky guys? Here are just a few examples of some of their crabbiness. Amos said, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. That's kind of a nasty thing to say. And Isaiah said, stop bringing meaningless offerings. I can't bear your evil assemblies. And Micah says this, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, 
Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the sin from, skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. That's a little over the top, isn't it? Not only do they use harsh words, the prophets also resort to some shock tactics to, that often look quite downright creepy. Hosea married a, prophet, a prostitute to reveal the broken heart of God over his people who had wandered away from him. Ezekiel ate food that was cooked over excrement to show the nation how unclean they had become and to reveal their future if they failed to repent. Jeremiah dug up a filthy undergarment and wore it to show Israel the disgusting nature of the people's behavior. Now, although these men were doing exactly what God called them to do, the casual observer would have seen their choices and their behaviors as quite bizarre. The prophetic writings of the Old Testament are filled with stuff like this, and we don't like it very much. In fact, a lot of people really avoid reading the prophets. They tell us things that we don't want to hear. They convict us of sin. They remind us that there are serious consequences for rebelling against God. They are not really happy books. And we like happy books. So I want to talk with you for a few minutes about why we should study the prophets. For one thing, we study them because they're in the Bible. It would not be a good thing to get to heaven and run into Obadiah and have him ask, well, how did you like my book? And we'd respond, well, you know, I didn't really read it. It's kind of hard to find. I heard it was kind of whiny. But there's a reason that these 17 books are included in the Holy Scriptures. There is a reason for the stern message and the demeanor of the prophets. There is a reason why we need more than any other Christians in any other culture or any other century to be submitting regularly to the teachings of the prophets. I want you to imagine that you're listening to someone sing and they're singing off key and they're singing badly off key and they're singing loudly off key. Now, if you're musically insensitive, if you have a tin ear, it doesn't really bother you that much. If you have a tin ear or if the singer is your child or your grandchild, you'll actually still experience some pleasure. But if you're musically sensitive, if you have perfect pitch, well, that's a different story. A person with perfect pitch agonizes over the singing, not just because it sounds bad, but because he or she realizes how beautiful the music could be. You wonder how others around you can stand this bad sound. Now imagine if this was you and you were listening to that noise minute after minute and hour after hour and day after day and year after year. Well, that's the experience of the prophets. 
God has given them a vision of what the world could be. But they are also aware of how far out of tune human beings are with God's plan. The prophets see and hear and feel as God does. Now, when we read the prophets, we wonder, what's the big deal? What are they getting all heated up about? For most of us, if we're happy and our needs are met, we think the world is a pretty good place. When things are going well for us, we can walk right past things that break God's heart without even noticing them. I know there's violence in the world. I read about it sometimes. It's regrettable, but as long as it doesn't touch my life, as long as it doesn't touch my home or my neighborhood, I'd prefer not to think about it. Certainly it couldn't be connected to my anger or my indifference or my greed or my lack of love. Cheating and deception go on every day, just the way things are. It's what people do to get by and to get ahead. 8,000 children are born with, in, infected with HIV and every day in sub-Saharan Africa where it's now the leading cause of death, but because it's so far away, I don't feel a thing. Just a few miles away from this room, children are born in desperate poverty, and they grow up without access to good education or medicine or housing, but they're not my children. Maybe their parents did something to deserve the plight that they're in. There's no reason to go off the deep end about it. So what if somebody shades the truth to make a few more bucks on a business deal? Or somebody ignores the outcast? Or somebody gets too wrapped up in their own comfort and too careless about the needs of others? So what if the poor got ripped off in ancient Palestine? The prophets acted like the world was falling apart. And that goes on everywhere all the time. Jesus, who the scriptures tell us was also a prophet, said that every time someone is in prison and they didn't get visited, every time someone is hungry and they didn't get fed, every time someone is thirsty and they didn't get something to drink, every time someone is naked and they didn't get clothed, that he suffered too. He dies a little bit every time. But what's the big deal? Let me tell you what the big deal is. The prophets were given a crushing burden of looking at the world and seeing what God sees. Rich people trying to get richer and looking the other way while poor people died. And all the while, they thought they were God's favorites because everything was going so well for them. The prophets learned this about the human race. We don't want to know the truth. We have a deeply invested interest in not getting it. We really don't want to know what sin has done to our hearts, how it has diminished and distorted our capacity for compassion and generosity. We don't want to know because that would make us uncomfortable. 
Micah put it like this. He said, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. Question for you. What does beer make you do? Does it cause you to be more alert or more relaxed? Some of you must know. doesn't cause us to be more attentive or more comfortable. It actually does cause us to be more comfortable, actually. Micah says that people prefer to live in a state of spiritual inebriation. We don't want to notice. We prefer not to feel, and we'd rather not hear about all the pain in the world. If a prophet comes to us with words that make us feel relaxed and at ease and at peace and comfortable, We would love to hear what he or she has to say. One of the greatest biblical scholars of the 20th century, Abraham Heschel, wrote, the shallowness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures is a simple fact of fallen humanity which no explanation can justify or hide. Events that appalled and horrified the prophets are everyday occurrences in our world. And we don't want to see, and we don't want to hear, and we don't want to know. We don't want anyone to tell us about human misery or injustice because it might disturb our comfort. We just get used to the mess, like we just get used to our houses falling into disrepair. We quit noticing. Have you ever driven by a hog farm? If you have, you probably remember it. As you get close to the farm, you're hit with this wall of stench that is distinct to pigs. And if it happens to be a hot, humid day, it can be even more intense. And you might find yourself wondering, how can anyone live with this stink? But if you actually spend a few hours on a hog farm, something amazing happens. The smell goes away. I mean, it doesn't really go away. You just stop noticing it. Sin functions in a similar way. With time, if we stay in close proximity to it, we get used to it. We don't see its consequences, and we wonder what the big deal is anyway. The prophets noticed. It was the prophet's job to shake us and wake us up and help us to realize that something stinks. That was their gift. That was their burden. Abraham Heschel also wrote this. He said, the prophet is a man who feels fiercely. God has thrust a burden upon his soul, and he is bowed and stunned at man's fierce greed. Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony. God is raging in the prophet's words. The prophets really do speak for God. 
Our failure to attend to what the prophets have written brings with it great peril for our own souls and also for the well-being of this world. They get our attention and they help us to notice what we have forgotten. And that's why we read the prophets. So how should we respond to what they say? What should we do? Are we to be paralyzed by the enormity of the injustice? It's way more than any one of us can fix. Should we be overwhelmed by guilt over our complicity in the wreckage of this world? This is what Micah says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Micah starts small here. A burnt offering could be a dove or a pigeon, something that most people could afford. Shall I come with calves a year old? Well, a calf was an expensive sacrifice. This would have been a very generous gift. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? This would be an offering only a king could give. Or with 10,000 rivers of oil. Now this was simply impossible. No one could offer God even one river of oil, much less 10,000. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Would God want me to give that which is most precious to me in the whole world. Micah is pushing the possibilities here as far as he can. But the message here is not that, is, is that none of these things are what God really wants from us. What he really wants is us. Our hearts, our lives fully yielded to him. Micah sums up the response that God is looking for in one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament. It's the one thing that I want you to carry away with you this morning because if you grasp this one statement, I think you'll really have an understanding of the heart of the prophet's teaching through all 17 books. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What God asks for is something that anyone can give. He wants us to act in ways that reflect his justice. He wants us to love what is merciful. And he wants us to walk in authentic humility with him. If we're humble before God, we will follow him and our whole life will be his. And that's what God wants from each of his children. Three things that everybody can do, and we know what they are. We can pretend that we don't understand. We can act confused like we really don't know what God requires. But he has shown you, O oh man, O oh woman, what is good. There is no doubt about this. God has been exceedingly clear about these three things. 
What would happen if you and I ordered our lives around acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God? You think for a moment about how mad you get when someone treats you unjustly, when someone cuts you off on the freeway, when someone criticizes you unfairly. Justice is a strange thing. We all want it for ourselves. If we are wronged, we demand, we expect justice. But what about justice for others? Dave Hagler is a former baseball umpire. He wrote this story in the Los Angeles Times. He said, I was driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado, when a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk my way out of it, telling him how worried I was about my insurance rate and about what a good driver I usually was. He told me if I didn't like the ticket, I could take it to court. In the first day, game of the next baseball season, I was umpiring behind home plate. The first batter was up, and it was the same policeman. I recognized him, and he recognized me. I asked him, or he asked me, how did that thing with the ticket go? I told him, swing it, everything close. <laughs> we hate it when someone treats us unfairly at work, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at school, at church. It makes our blood boil. We tell stories about those injustices for a long time. But God says, get just as energized when someone else is treated unfairly as when you're treated that way. Have passion for justice, and in particular, have that passion for those that others might have a tendency to overlook. I can't correct all the injustice in the world, but I can do something. First, I can notice I can pay attention to countries and corporations and how they behave. I can recognize when I'm part of the injustice problem. And I can pray. I can ask God to help me to treat others fairly every day. I can summon the courage to stand up for people who've been treated unfairly in my circles of nearness. The signs on the way to the airport say, if I see something, I must say something. And lastly, I, who have so much more than I need, can share some of what I have with people who have no food or no homes or no hope. Edward Everett Hale wrote, I am only one, but I am still one. I cannot correct everything, but I can do something. And I will not let what I cannot do interfere with what I can do. God also requires us to love mercy. The Hebrew word that Micah uses, chesed, is a very rich word. It is most commonly used to describe God's loving kindness that flows out of his covenant relationship with his people. It's the kind of love that always seeks to express itself in action. It's never confined to a feeling. It's far more than just good intentions. 
in a town called Paradise, California. There lives a young man named John Gilbert. When John was five years old, he was diagnosed with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It's a genetic, progressive, cruel disease. He was told that it would eventually destroy his muscles, and then about 10 years later, it would take his life. Each year, John lost something. One year, it was his ability to run. He couldn't play games or sports with other kids. Another year, he lost his ability to walk. All he could do then was watch others play. John Gilbert wrote that junior high was the hardest time of his life. He was bullied and humiliated until he was afraid to go to school. No one stood up for him. One year, John was chosen as the poster child for muscular dystrophy in California. On one occasion, he flew to Sacramento with his mom for a private meeting with the governor. And that night, the NFL sponsored a fundraising dinner and auction for MD research, where John was a guest of honor. The players from the 49ers let him hold their Super Bowl rings that were nearly as big as his whole hand. When the auction began, one item really got John's attention. It was a basketball signed by all the members of the Sacramento Kings, his favorite team. He got a little carried away when the item came up for bid because he raised his hand, but as soon as it went up, his mother yanked it back down. He wrote that astronauts never felt as many G's as his wrist did <laughs> that night. The bidding for the basketball went up and up and up until someone called out a bid that stunned the room. Nobody else could match it. The winning bidder went forward to collect his prize. But instead of returning to his seat, the man walked across the room and placed the basketball in John's thin, frail hands. He placed that expensive ball in hands that would never dribble it down the court, never throw it to a teammate on a fast break, never fire a shot at the buzzer from three-point range. Have you bought a basketball for anybody lately? God says, love mercy. Do good things for the people around you. Be kind for everyone you meet faces some great battle. We often make it so complicated, but it's really not. Have you gone out of your way to serve somebody? Have you given food to hungry people or clothing to people who need it or help to build a house for a family without a home? Have you shown up for a blood drive? Have you given an unexpected gift to a neighbor? Have you offered to tutor some students? Have you volunteered to babysit for a single parent? Have you taken time to notice people who others overlook? This should be a way of life for Christ followers. But as with all journeys, begins with the first step. Have you bought a basketball or a backpack 
for anybody lately. The last thing that God requires of us is to walk humbly. Walk humbly with your God. I think this phrase had special meaning for Micah. I think it must be hard to be a prophet without getting all self-righteous about it. Have you ever met someone in a church who made it their mission to go around correcting other people? There's a kind of a person who exists often in Christian circles who passes judgment in a spirit of arrogance. They may even try to justify themselves by claiming some special insight. I have a prophetic gift. I have the gift of discernment. I think there's, that there's a very important theological distinction between being a prophet and being a jerk. What burns most deeply in the heart of a true prophet is not anger, it's love. A true prophet remembers that he or she is a sinful person who needs grace desperately. Even as they remind people to be aware of their sins, to be conscious of others' needs, they must always walk humbly with their God. So what will happen when people act justly and love mercy and walk humbly? Micah speaks of the outcome in the closing chapter of this book. He writes, nations will see. Not just Israel. Not just one little group. But all people will see what God sees. Nations will see and be ashamed. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn to the Lord in fear. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like our God? There is none. And what does our God require of us? We can try to evade his expectations. We can pretend to be confused, but he has made them very clear. He has showed you, O oh man, O oh woman, what the Lord requires to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let it be so. Please pray with me. God, we acknowledge that too often we avoid the teachings of your prophets. Their words challenge us to see our sins and the world's great needs. They convict us of our muchness and manyness. They afflict us when we have grown too comfortable. However, in the deepest places of our hearts, God, we desire to love you more and to do all that you require. Please help us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you until we arrive at last 
at our eternal destination. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 